Hey, this is Carl Anderson. I'm the senior pastor of Sierra Bible Church, and this is our sermons podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today, and I hope that this message fills your soul with hope, helps you see the beauty of Jesus, and allows you to feel the love that God has for you. If you want more information about experiencing God's love for you personally, head over to sierrabible.org and contact one of our pastors. I love you, and I'm praying for you. Good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing? My name's Cassidy Hastings. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the joy and privilege of sharing out of God's Word this morning. Um, we are going to be, we're in our week two of our Advent series, Cosmic Christmas, and uh, we're kind of looking at throughout the series kind of like what's actually going on behind the scenes, spiritually speaking, behind some seemingly uh, like mundane things and some, uh, like, what, what are the spiritual realities going on? And, and last week, if you were here, uh, you heard Pastor Glenn uh, preach out of that uh, very traditional passage of Christmas that you see on all the cards of Revelation 12 with a dragon-eating baby. Um, and so if you've missed that and you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And if you're not a follower of Jesus and this is like the, your first experience, you're probably like, I'm either going to leave or I'm going to like dig into that more. But uh, make sure you check that out if you missed that last week. Um, it was talking about this cosmic war that's going on, and we'll be kind of uh, building on that a little bit this week. But uh, today, as, uh, as we saw, or as we heard in the, in the scripture reading, we're going to be in Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. But we are going to be building up uh, to that. Um, if you are here in person and you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in, in the pew in front of you. Uh, the passage for this morning is going to be on page 471. And uh, you can also look it up um, on, uh, if you just search in Google for uh, Matthew 1 ESV, that's what we're going to be in this morning. So, um, as we talked about last week, there was this cosmic war going on, um, and as with many wars, uh, there are usually uh, kind of specific battles that happen within that, right, that are crucial uh, either for strategic reasons or moral reasons of, of moral victories and, and things that kind of are shots in the arm for that side, um, and some of them, actually, you look back and you kind of see how that changed the the tide of the entire war, right? So it's kind of going in one direction. It looks like it's just going to continue in that trajectory. And then all of a sudden this battle happens and then, and then it, it changes the outcome of the entire war. And so uh, a, couple of, a couple of examples that uh, you might have heard of on Christmas night in 1776, uh, George Washington crossed the Delaware River uh, with a group of continental soldiers to give uh, the Hessians who were encamped at Trenton, New Jersey, a very big surprise, and uh, they overcame. And and again, this this one is one of those battles that wasn't as much of a like strategic, uh, like the the place of Trenton wasn't as as strategic or whatever. But what it did was it was a shot in the arm for the Continental Army because up until this point. They had, uh, you know, suffered a lot of big defeats, and this one kind of was like, hey, things are changing, right? And so it changed that. Another one that you might have heard of, July 1st through 3rd of 1863, 
uh, is a, a battle called Gettysburg. And so this was in the American Civil War when the, the southern troops commanded by Robert E. Lee were going and trying to take over more of the north and uh, kind of pushing their forces northward. And then they were met in the town of Gettysburg uh, by the commanding forces of George Meade. And uh, they were pushed back repelled. Uh, they went and uh, into retreat, and this was uh, one of those battles that it was a high watermark of the southern expansion uh, into the north, um, and because of that pushback, um, it actually did change the tide of the entire Civil War, and, and, and because of that, uh, the Union ended up winning that. Another one that everyone I'm sure is familiar with is June 6th of 1944. World War II was happening, and uh, the Nazi occupation was continuing to take over Europe. And so what happened on June 6, 1944, was the largest amphibious invasion in human history. 160,000 Allied troops stormed a 50-mile section of the French coastline in order to overtake uh, on the beaches of Normandy to overtake the German forces there and to establish uh, a, a, a foothold in Northwest Europe to help free them from occupation of the Nazis. So Heidi, if I got any of that wrong, just have Steve email me and, uh, and just correct me. Steve Tim is a huge uh, history buff. But, but any of these, uh, I think sometimes like when you're going into a battle like that, you're, you're thinking, okay, this is going to be important and it's, it's going to be, uh, you know, important that we kind of win this. But I think a lot of times when we look back, we see kind of the importance of these battles. That in the midst of it, some of these were massive invasions, 160,000 people storming the beach at once. Some of them were secret invasions. But all of these were kind of like looking back, we can see how important they were to the war at that time. And in our passage today, we're going to be looking at another battle that happened that changed the course of all of human history, not just um, of a specific nation, but of the entire cosmic war that was going on. But this battle did not look like much from the outside. When we talk about Christmas and the incarnation and what is happening, it's amidst some very, very humble circumstances. And we're going to see how Jesus' humble birth appeared how, how humble and, and weak and insignificant it might have appeared from the surrounding circumstances. But in reality, this was a spiritual invasion of enemy territory. It was a battle that was being waged in the manger of the incarnation and, and what that looks like. If you want the big idea in one sentence of what we're going to be looking at today is that God works through humble means to do supernaturally big things. God works through humble means to do supernaturally big things. So last week, as I mentioned, Pastor Glenn started us off in Revelation 12. We were talking about this great cosmic war that was going on and all the symbolism from Revelation 12 and how it was pointing to the birth of this male child. And so we saw that the, the dragon was there and the woman who was giving birth um, and he was the, the dragon was the red dragon was poised to eat the baby. Um, and so we saw how the, the dragon represented Satan and uh, the baby was Jesus pointing towards Jesus and that God protected him so that he could complete his sovereign purpose. So Pastor Glenn kind of tracked back as well to uh, all the way back to Genesis 3, where the, the very first promise of the coming dragon slayer was promised. 
the snake crusher, right? So in Genesis 3.15, uh, it, it talks about how that the, the snake would bruise the heel, but the, the man, the Savior, the coming one, would crush his head, would bruise his head. Specifically, this Messiah that was promised starting all the way back in Genesis 3 was promised to come through the people of Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, the Jewish people were anticipating his arrival. Today, we're going to be building up to our passage by briefly kind of doing a quick flyover of the Old Testament and kind of looking at six specific scenes that kind of build this up. Now, God chose Abraham initially, and he promised to make him, in Genesis 12, he promised to make him a great nation, and that through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Through Abraham's offspring of Isaac and Jacob, God began expanding this chosen family through whom he was going to show himself to all of the nations. And then by the time Joseph dies, Joseph is one of Jacob's sons, in Genesis 50, when Joseph dies... He's trusting that God is going to bring Israel into the land that promised that he promised them, and they're still looking forward to this coming Messiah. So the first stop that as we fly over, and I'm going to do this very quickly, uh, but the first stop that we see is in Egypt. So Israel at this point in time was enslaved in Egypt. God in, Gen- in Exodus 1 protected Moses at his birth and called him and Aaron to represent God's people before Pharaoh. God used him and and used these plagues to show how the one true God of Israel was better than all the Egyptian gods. And God led Israel out of Egypt with a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire by night. He brought them to the Red Sea and the Egyptians were coming and he parted the Red Sea and brought them safely through. He covered up the Egyptian armies and wiped them out. The people of Israel were on the cusp of entering the promised land, and yet because of Moses' disobedience, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. So in our first snapshot, the main nation at the time who was in conflict with Israel was who? Egypt, right? So we have the Egyptians who are uh, oppressing the people of Israel and ruling over them, but God raises up Moses and they escape. They are, he delivers them out of the hands of Egypt, um, and they are left wandering. Stop two, Joshua. So here they are. After the death of Moses, Joshua 1, after the death of Moses, God raises up Joshua to lead his people into the land of Canaan. So the land of Canaan was filled with Canaanites and other tribes um, that were living in the area. And so Joshua crosses the Jordan and begins to take over various Canaanite cities. The most famous, you probably have heard of it, is Jericho. And so the Israelites come into this land that God has promised, and they are told to wipe out and to conquer these people. And at the end of Joshua, they are living in the land, and they divide the land up among the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? In scene number two, who's the nation that is at, in conflict? Canaan. Okay, so we have the Egyptians and the Canaanites. Then, after the death of Joshua, we hit number three, the period of the judges. After Joshua's death, Judah initially led the battles that were going on, but it didn't take long for Israel to start doing what? What was right in their own eyes. Because of their disobedience, God used the surrounding nations to judge them. 
He used the Canaanites. He used uh, the Philistines. He used some other ones as well during this time. But you see throughout the book of Judges, this cycle of apostasy, of them disobeying God, God using the other nations to judge them. Under that oppression, they would cry out to God and God would do what? Raise up a deliverer to deliver them and to set them free for a time. So then they would live in obedience for a while, but then they would start disobeying. And so this is not just a cycle. If you think about, I I think of the book of Judges more like not just a circle, but a toilet (laughs) um, where things are spiraling down more and more. And, uh, And all of this was to point towards the need of a godly king to come. So in this one, in stop number three, period of the judges, there's these other nations, right? The Canaanites, the Philistines, you see a lot of these battles, the Midianites, the Ammonites, all the ites um, are, are at war, but God uses these different judges to deliver them, but the, the hero is not the judges, uh, just so you know. So what comes after this? The period of the United Kingdom, not the England, um, but the United Kingdom, meaning that all the tribes were together and they were living under the rule of a king. Three main kings, uh, Saul, which we just heard about up here, that he started off well, and then uh, that didn't go well over time. Um, But then God raised up David, right? And so David, uh, you probably have heard as he's kind of growing and, and all of this, he's, he's conquering Philistines and stuff, the most uh, famous being Goliath. And, and so he's kind of working his way, uh, just being faithful with where God has him. And then God calls him and appoints him as king of Israel. And so he reigns and he, he had some issues also. Uh, so he's not the hero of the story, but they lived in peace overall for uh, under his reign. And then after his death, his son Solomon reigned, which again started out okay. But eventually he turned from following the Lord and pursued his many wives. So during this time, again, like the, there's some tension between some of these nations and stuff. But overall, uh, David's reign is not just characterized by... Um, by, by justice and, and by living the people of God living in the right way under his rule. But there's also a promise in the midst of that, right? That, his, that the throne of this promised Messiah would come through David's line and that the throne that David sat on would be an eternal throne. So our, last, our fifth stop is kind of like an A and B. Uh, so after the period of David, um, after the rebellion against the, um, after Solomon's disobedience, uh, now the nation of Israel splits up into two. Okay, so you have in the north there are ten tribes. We've been going over this with our boys uh, in in our devotions with them and stuff. In the in the north we have ten tribes, um, and they are called Israel. In the south there's two tribes called Judah, and in the north with the ten tribes. They, they existed for 200 years. They had 19 kings, and all of them did evil in the sight of the Lord. God sent prophets to Israel to tell them to repent, but they didn't listen. And then in 722 BC, God used, does anybody know who? The Assyrians. So the Assyrians come in. So this other nation comes into the 10 tribes of the north, and they overtake them. They conquer Samaria, which is the capital of Israel. And, and they take them into captivity into Assyrian cities. So that was in 722. In the southern 
This is our last stop in the history lesson. And uh, so if you like history, this is great. If not, you're like falling asleep. But uh, this is all important in, in how we understand what is happening uh, in, in the incarnation. So in the southern tribes, the two southern tribes of Judah, things went a little better. Uh, for th- they existed for 350 years. They had 12 rulers who did evil on the side of the Lord and eight good, uh, good leaders. And God, again, sent whenever they were doing badly and disobeying God, God sent prophets to say, hey, you need to change. Uh, you need to repent and follow me and live according to my word. And ultimately, they did not do that. And then in 586 BC, God brought in who? The Babylonians. Nice job, Josh, Johnny. Uh, so he brought in the Babylonians, all right? So the, the Babylonians came in, overtook Jerusalem, and then exiled the people of God to Babylon. Okay. Eventually, the people of God would return to the land after their exile, rebuild the walls. That's where Nehemiah comes in. Um, but even then, there's a period of 400 years of silence between the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, where Israel, throughout all of this, is longing for the promised one to come, longing for the Messiah. Why do I go over this history? <laughs> Because we need to understand the context of what's going on, not just in the Bible, but in our passage this morning. Israel had been longing for deliverance. Under the Egyptians, they cried out to God for deliverance. Under the Canaanites, under the Philistines, in their conflicts with all of these nations, the Midianites, the Ammonites, in the Assyrian captivity, in the Babylonian captivity, Israel throughout all of this, in in these nations that they were either exiled under or oppressed by or in conflict with, they were longing for this Messiah. Because all throughout the Old Testament too, we see kind of the this promise of this coming Messiah woven through. We see it as it starts all the way back. The kind of initial thread is in Genesis 3.15. A snake-crushing Savior who was promised to Eve would come. We see the promise coming through Abraham in Genesis 12 that a worldwide blessing would come through him and his descendants. We see in Deuteronomy 18 where there's a promise of a better Moses, a better prophet than Moses to come. Even under Joshua and the judges, there was a better leader to come. There was a better deliverer to come than any of the judges. The judges were horrible. Like God used them, but they were pointing towards the need of a better deliverer. David was a good king, but Israel needed a better king. And it was promised through the line of David and throughout all of the prophets as well. There are so many different prophecies, Isaiah 9, Micah 5, Isaiah uh, 7, Isaiah 60. All of these are pointing to what is going to happen eventually with this coming Messiah. He would be born in Bethlehem. He'd be born of a virgin. The nations would come to him. He would suffer. So there's two important dynamics at play as we understand our passage this morning. First of all, is that there's been a thread of a longing for deliverance from oppression in the people of God. 
At the same time, there's a promise of a coming deliverer. And part of the whole message of the Old Testament is to build this anticipation of this coming Savior. Now, fast forward to the New Testament setting. Who was leading, who was overseeing, who was kind of occupying the area? Who, 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 was, who were the Israelites living under at the time? Rome, right? So it was the Roman Empire, and the Jewish people were following God as best they could in the midst of this occupying power. The Jews were looking for the Messiah, the promised king, a military hero who would come through the line of David. And in fact, if you, uh, if you read the first 17 verses of our passage this morning, it's, it's tracing this Messiah back through the line of David, through the genealogy. They were longing for a deliverer, and then he comes. Let's look at our passage. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. A well-known Jewish woman was married to a famous Jewish man in an elaborate public wedding ceremony. It was the buzz all around Judea, and everyone was talking about the widespread influence of this power couple. They had their son in a royal palace in the bustling city of Jerusalem with all the pomp and circumstance you'd expect around the birth of a king. His first onesie was designer fashion from the finest materials available, and he was placed in a golden crib. The royal hall was filled with high-profile guests celebrating his birth, and the first birth announcements were sent to the top 10% most important people in the region. Expectations were high for the future of this baby boy. One day he would grow up, overthrow the Roman oppressors, and reestablish the greatness of Israel from his throne in Jerusalem. Is that what yours says? Hopefully not. (laughs) Have you ever had, uh, I mean, Christmas is just a few weeks away. Have you ever had like a surprise gift that you are anticipating? And uh, and then it just kind of falls flat. (laughs) So we did this uh, back in June 2017. uh, We were in Oregon and we were, our boys were one, three, and five, I think at the time. And uh, we were like, we're going to surprise them by taking them to the zoo the Oregon Zoo, like they're going to flip. And, uh, and so we kind of kept it on the DL and everything. And on, that's down low, um, in case you don't know what that means. Uh, we kept it on the DL and, uh, and kind of woke up that morning and went to, to Donuts. And we were like, oh, yay, Donuts. And then we were like, hey, we're going to take a train ride. And they were like, oh, cool. So we take this train ride uh, to get to the entrance of the zoo. We get to the entrance of the zoo. Uh, we start recording because we're like, they're just gonna like, they're gonna flip. So we actually have the video if you if you want to see it, see me afterwards. But like, <laughs> we're like, we're recording. We sit Isaiah down and uh, we're like, hey guys, guess where we are? And they were like, where? And we're like, the zoo. And it was literally like blank stares. Like, I don't even know what a zoo is and, uh, and everything. So we had to go through this whole thing of like, what's a, what, like, what is a zoo? And, and, oh, giraffes and like elephants and everything. And, and it just was like, build up, build up, build up. And then like, <laughs> um, and, and so I don't know if you've had that. If not, I hope you have some of those experiences because they're great. But the, uh, but the anticipation of the Messiah 
kind of in some ways feels like that because of the humility of his circumstances. You would expect that someone this anticipated would have a pretty extravagant entry. But in fact, the conditions that actually surround his birth were pretty scandalous and humble. So let's look at our actual text this morning and see some of the conditions surrounding Jesus's birth. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So here we have this young Jewish virgin who was pregnant. And then we also have a God-honoring husband who instead of the the penalty for that was being stoned to death, and instead of putting her through that, he was like, I'm going to resolve to uh, divorce her quietly so that she could still live. But then God tells Joseph that he's doing something supernatural. But as Joseph, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so God appears to Joseph and says, through, through an angel, and says, hey, don't be afraid of this. It looks scandalous from the outside, but I'm doing something supernatural. And then he says, he gives what the birth is going to be. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You'll have a boy, and I want you to name him Jesus. And this is not just about a pregnancy, not just about a supernatural pregnancy. He will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins, not saved from Egypt, not saved from the Canaanites, not saved from the Philistines or the Assyrians or the Babylonians, not even saved from Rome. He will save his people from their sins. And he would be God with us. He would be the one that the prophet Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 7. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then we see Joseph's response here. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until they had given, until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. We also see in Luke 2, some of the other things that were surrounding the humility of Jesus's arrival. He was born in a cave in Bethlehem. This was to fulfill what Micah had talked about. They laid him in a manger And then the announcements did not go out first to the top 10%, to the most elite, to the celebrities of the time. It went out to the shepherds. It was announced by an angelic host. And what appeared to be an announcement that brought fear was actually an announcement to bring good news of great joy that will be for all people. 
I think it's really, really interesting as we kind of consider the spiritual realities behind Christmas during our series this, this uh, Advent, that the angelic armies that showed up were not there to fight. They came to announce the arrival of the hero. They came to say that the, the one who was coming was the one who was going to conquer death and to be joy for the whole world and to be the one, as Matthew says, to take, to save the people from their sins. There's a lot of humility, a lot of unexpected circumstances around the birth of Jesus. But it was all still part of a cosmic war. The battle of Bethlehem was not a political or military one. The battle of Bethlehem was one of the most pivotal battles in the cosmic spiritual war that has been raging since the fall of humanity. The baby boy of Revelation 12 entered into territory currently ravaged by the dragon in order to win back what was rightfully his. The snake crusher of Genesis 3 arrived on the earthly battlefield. God in Jesus came to be Emmanuel, God with us. He came to save humanity from our real enemy, sin. Our real enemy is not the political ones. Jesus wasn't coming as a political deliverer to the Jewish people who would save them from Roman rule with his military might. He was coming in humility as a spiritual deliverer who would provide freedom to all of humanity with his sacrificial death. Things are not always what they appear. So much of what we believe as followers of Jesus in the gospel is paradoxical. God is the one who brings beauty out of ashes, life out of death, victory out of suffering. He brings greatness out of serving. And in Philippians 2, we see how he brings glory even out of his humility. Who though in the, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's a Christmas verse. And being found in, the, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But listen what God does because of that humility. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Despite the humility of the circumstances, Jesus came to save us from our true enemy, sin. And I think this is important for us to kind of think about this Christmas because I think that we get wrapped up in externals very, very easily, a little too easily. What we see on the outside is not all there is. When we look just at the external things that are happening, 
It can cause us to exalt the flashy and ignore the humble or the seemingly insignificant. But God works through humble means to do supernaturally big things. So as we think about this this morning, first I want to talk to you if you're not yet a follower of Jesus. If you have not committed your life to following Jesus, there is a spiritual reality going on at this very moment as you are listening to this. There's a battle for your soul. Your greatest enemy in this battle is sin and Satan. And Satan wants nothing more than to keep you blind to the truth of the gospel of who Jesus is. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4 says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, the dragon, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep, listen to this, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The dragon that we heard about last week will do whatever he can to keep you from understanding the spiritual realities at play. He will do whatever he can to keep you from understanding that Jesus is not just a cute little Christmas baby on a Christmas card, but he came to save you from your sin. And the good news is that victory over this sin, over this enemy, is not dependent on our effort. You have someone who invaded enemy territory, who fought that battle on your behalf. And this is truly good news of great joy for you. So your action point, if you're listening to this, respond to the gospel. Ultimately, this is something that only God can do. God can use the simple, humble means of hearing a message like this, of hearing God's word, to open your eyes to the spiritual realities that are at play to see what's going on. Listening to this right now may seem insignificant or basic, but just like with Jesus's birth, behind the scenes, there's a spiritual battle behind this humble appearance. My prayer for you is that God, by his power and his power alone, would help you for the first time see the beauty of Jesus, the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ not just a baby on a Christmas card, but that you would see Jesus as the snake-crushing hero who infiltrated enemy territory. He left his glory to come in the midst of humility to rescue you by giving his very life for you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, my prayer is that we would see things through a different lens this Christmas. And not just this Christmas, but moving forward. That humble, weak, and even painful circumstances are opportunities for God to work in spiritually powerful ways. Second Corinthians 4 continues and says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown 
in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we have this no matter our circumstances. What we have, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Verse 16 continues, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, listen to this, as we look not to the things that are seen, not to the externals, not to the things that we can kind of process, but to the, un, to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. If you're a follower of Jesus, Fix your eyes on what is unseen, not on what is seen. Don't get wrapped up in the external expectations. We often put too much hope in the wrong places. The Jews were looking for a, a deliverer to come deliver them from Rome. That's not what they got. We put, it's so easy for us to put our hope in the wrong places as humans, at the ballot boxes, in what our preferred news outlet is telling us to be afraid of at the time. In our jobs, in our families, we put our hope in our own knowledge, in our own account balances. But the hope of the world is not rooted in any of these human external things. Our hope is rooted in our humble Savior who was born into this sin-soaked world to save us to himself. See the spiritual realities that are at play and don't discount the things that are seemingly insignificant. Praying with your kids. Right before I came up here, I just had a really good conversation with Levi. There's spiritual realities at play that don't look flashy. Memorizing a Bible verse, memorizing the truth of God's word so that you can use that to combat the lies of Satan, of the dragon. Gathering with other believers on a Sunday morning. It's not flashy. Seems mundane, seems insignificant. There is so much spiritual power in gathering with the people of God. Another humble thing, taking communion together. We're going to be doing that in just a few minutes. There is spiritual power in seemingly insignificant, humble means. Taking meal to someone who's struggling, talking to a neighbor or coworker about the challenges they're facing. Where are they putting their hope? <laughs> who's their main enemy? Who do they think their main enemy is? Because I'm guessing that they're probably not wrestling at the time with that the real enemy is a spiritual one. Our humble and weak actions may seem insignificant on the surface, but there is spiritual power behind them when God is at work and God is involved, just like there was 2,000 years ago when Jesus came to earth. God works through humble means 
to do supernaturally big things. So don't fix your eyes on that which is seen. Fix your eyes on that which is unseen. Let's pray. God, I thank you that all of this is because of your grace. God, we didn't do anything to have you shine the light of the glory of who Jesus is into our lives. To help us understand that Jesus is not just a good teacher. That he's not just a a prophet that was an important instructor in first century Israel, God. He is God with us. He is the Messiah. He is the one who came not to deliver us from suffering and oppression around us, but he came to save us from our sins. And God, we respond to you this morning because of that. And God, I pray that if there's anybody listening to this now or later on down the road, who is listening to this now, God, that you and me use the humble means of your word to do supernaturally big things, to open their eyes to the glory of Jesus. And God, for those of us who have responded, who have received this gift from you, God, I pray that you would help us persevere, that you would help us to carry this message of Jesus to those who don't yet know it. God, there's so much pain and suffering around this time. All of those things are amplified, God, and we have the message that is good news of great joy. Use us to share that this week for your honor and glory in your name and fame. Amen.